All right, well, hopefully you're in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. And we're continuing in our series on prayer. We believe that God is leading us to be intentional about prayer here at this church. I say it that way because I believe a lot of people give prayer lip service. All Christians know that they should pray. They know that it's important. They know that the Bible clearly outlines it from Genesis to Revelation, that prayer in the life of the believer should be as natural as one breathing. And yet what I have discovered is that prayer is often not applied in the believer's life. The vast majority of Christians polled and asked believe that their prayer lives could be much better than they actually are. I believe prayer is one of those great privilege, if not the greatest privilege that we have in our Christian faith that we do not take advantage of. However, though, when I read book after book after book on how to pray... In fact, I went to the Amazon website and I discovered that they had 69,188 different books on how to pray. That's all great and stuff. That's awesome. Good thing. I'm glad those are out there. But do you know our Lord summed it up for us in nine verses? He showed us how to pray in nine verses because He was asked, how do we pray? And He showed us how to pray. And He gave us a template on how to do so. We began this series by showing you God's invitation to you to come and to pray. Then we launched into last week a first of the two messages on how to pray. How would God want us to pray? How many of you here have a a smartphone? Okay. Anybody have a dumb phone? Look at that, okay. Still put dimes in the side of it, you know? Rotary dial. It is amazing when I watch people use their smartphone in texting. I am now convinced that either my daughter is an alien or she has bionic thumbs. She's like this. And she can do five other things while she's doing that, you know? And she just goes right back at it. She can text like no one's business. I have seen her check her Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat all at one time. It's amazing how equipped and how readily available this technology is to people and how they take advantage of it. And these are the same people who like to tell me, I I don't know how to pray. Really? Or the people who have the gift of gab. That God has just blessed them to gab. And then they say, but I don't know how to pray. Do you realize that prayer is nothing but talking and communicating with God? That's what prayer is. And I'm going to tell you, I don't really know if there's necessarily a wrong way to talk to God. Just talk to Him. You know, prayer has become like dieting here in the United States of America. We all know that we need to do it. We all have the books on it, but very few of us apply it, right? And then we're wondering why these diets don't work. You know, I was reading this diet book while I was eating a Big Mac, and I just didn't understand why I wasn't benefiting from it. Really? 
But do you know how many people, when they come to their prayer lives, they are often hindered because they don't feel like they know how to pray? I remember starting out in my Christian life, never formally being introduced to prayer or how to pray, I simply began to talk to God. Giving Him the reverence and the, and the respect that He is a due for the majestic, sovereign God in whom He is. But I simply came through Christ and began to talk to God. And that launched the relationship that I have with Him today. Can you have a relationship with someone and not communicate with them? Is it possible? Or is the relationship hampered if communication is not a dynamic part of it? How many marriages are suffering today because communication has been lost? Dean and I, you know, we still, to this day, 21 years after being married, still at the end of our days, end up in the same place in our living room, me on the couch, her on the love seat, and we talk until we're ready to go to bed about whatever. And we find that that time together has been the fundamental foundation of everything else that God has been doing. In our marriage together, that simple communication. I believe the health of any Christian life can be uh, found within the health of the prayer life of that individual. I believe they go hand in hand. I believe God wants us to be men and women of prayer. He invites us to... And now he's equipping us and telling us how to do that, which we'll look at more uh, this morning. And next week, as we continue on, we're going to be looking at those things that will hinder our prayer lives. And you may be shocked to discover what the Bible says will hinder our prayer lives through Christ. Let's begin by looking at our passage this morning. We find ourselves in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, in a portion of Scripture that is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever given is found within three chapters of Matthew and Luke's Gospel, and that is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And within this sermon, Jesus teaches the people how to pray. And last week we began by showing you that prayer begins, proper prayer begins with a proper perspective of God. He first starts in verses 5 through 9 by listing, I should say 5 through 8, by listing things that we should not do. And he uses two examples for us. Again, at that time, if we go back in time, if we go back in history, we'll discover that the people of Israel looked to their religious leaders as examples on what to do when it came to interacting with God. But Jesus showed and demonstrated very accurately that many of the religious leaders at that time were nothing more than pure hypocrites. So he warns them first, do not be like the hypocrites who pray on the street corners, who look for their attention from others rather than looking for their attention from God. Jesus says, you go to your private place, your secret place. Some of your Bibles may say your closet and begin to pray. The room that he uses there in the Greek is a very specific room. It is the storage room of the house. To us, that would be a closet, and that's why some of your English translations render it such. But at that time, it was more of like 
the household's safety deposit box. Instead of having banks that had secure locations that you could store things and have them guarded, a house needed to uh, provide that for the household. So they had a place where their treasures were stored within the house. Jesus says, you go to that room. And he was undoubtedly trying to communicate a principle to them. That if you're truly going to have treasures stored for you in heaven, then you must be a person of prayer. Go into that storeroom and look at all those things that you count so precious to yourself. And you pray there. Get your heart right with God. Look at those things in the proper perspective. Again, you cannot store for yourselves treasures here and in heaven and live in that duality. God was saying, as you pray, you are storing for yourselves treasures in heaven. And where God sees privately, He'll openly reward publicly. And those are true treasures. But then he goes to the Gentiles, who Gentiles try to always gain the uh, approval and the, uh, the attention of their gods by using many words, heaping up for themselves phrases, repetitive phrases, one right after another, in hopes that their gods, their pagan gods, would hear them. And Jesus said, that's not necessary, for your Father knows what you are in need of before you ask. So he right away eliminates two wrong examples and tells us how to do it correctly. We looked at that last week. Then he begins and shows us through the demonstration of prayer in verse 9, if you'll look there with me. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the beginning portion of 9 and 10, in verses 9 and 10, this lays the foundation for a proper perspective of God. That it is God first, I am second. Again, Jesus is not trying to teach them a prayer per se. He's trying to teach them how to pray. There's a big difference. You can teach someone a prayer to recite some words. And that's often how we approach teaching our children how to pray. We teach them prayers such as this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. For if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And this is a shock then to Christians to discover that our children are growing up as insomniacs. Because no one can go to sleep thinking they're going to die in the middle of the night. Can you imagine that? What a, what a prayer to teach a child. If I would have done that with Autumn, she would have laid there in her bed wide awake, gripping her stuffed animals, etc. She would have been freaked out by that. So how do you teach your children how to pray? Well, we simply allowed Autumn to watch Dean and I pray. As a young child, we just put her in the midst of us, sat her on the couch between us, and she got to watch us pray. She learned how to, what it means to fold your hands. Do you ever wonder why when people pray they fold their hands? Do you ever, did you ever wonder why people do that? Do you know what this means? It is a Roman symbol for surrender. When an army had been conquered by the Roman Empire, the way that they demonstrated their surrender was by coming to the Roman Empire like this. Do you know why? So their hands could be bound. 
When we come before God like this, Christians pick this practice up, we are saying, God, we are surrendering to you. That's what we're saying. That's why people fold their hands like this. Most of the time in the Bible, you see them raising their hands like this. But Christians later adopted this principle, showing their, and demonstrating their surrender unto God. I think that's interesting. But we wanted to demonstrate to our child how to pray, not just to learn a prayer. And it started out with some of the most incredibly sweet and humble prayers. Like I said last week, she would pray for the salvation of all of her stuffed animals. She would pray that they would be healed. She would pray that God would bless them, etc. But she was learning how to pray. And now I see that in her life. When we pray together as a family, Autumn prays because she watched Mom and I pray. And she has now adopted that for herself in her own time with God. But the first three principles that are found in 9 and 10 bring us into a proper perspective of God that we learned about last week together. That brings us to verse 11. The second half of this template prayer shows us how to pray for our personal needs or what the Bible calls petitions. In other places, it's known as supplication, where we pray for those things that we are in need of. And there are three things that God is going to demonstrate that we are all in need of. Our daily provision, number one. Number two, we need forgiveness. And number three, we need to avoid temptation and evil. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. As we continue on here in verse 11, as this portion of petition now begins, give us this day our daily bread. To that culture at that time, that would have been significant for them to hear. Most of them did not live paycheck by paycheck. We're all familiar with that term, correct? Living paycheck by paycheck. How often do you get paid? Maybe every other week, every two weeks you get paid? In that culture, they didn't know what was happening day by day by day. They often would work, and then at the end of the day, get paid for that day's worth of work. If they were out sick for several days, that could have been detrimental to their particular situation. That could have really thrown them behind. So the word daily is introduced here. On a daily basis, provide the needs that we are in need of. That's what the bread represents. Bread was one of the most simple staples at that time. It often represented in literature at that time and also the Old Testament of daily needs that a person would have. Food, water, shelter, clothing, etc., would often be summed up in this word bread. And God is saying, Jesus is teaching, again, this is Jesus, okay? This is Jesus who's teaching us how to pray. I think he knows how to do it pretty well, right? I I think he's going to be the final authority on how to pray. And so we look at Jesus, and he's teaching us to approach God on a daily basis for those needs that we have. Why? On a daily basis. In the word give, we find that we, are, we need to be moved by an attitude of gratitude rather than greed. We need to be grateful rather than to take things for granted. We have seen what entitlement does to the mindset of a generation, have we not? Changes everything. 
where people now expect certain things. It's their right to have certain things. I bet you that if you were to poll many people today and ask them, do you believe that it is a right of the citizens of the United States of America to own a cell phone, the vast majority of them would say yes. In fact, I think our government is even providing cell phones for people in many different ways. I couldn't believe when I read about people who thought it was their right to have a driver's license. I always was raised that it was a privilege to have a driver's license. And that I had to be personally responsible in the manner in which I drove, right? And that driver's license could be taken away by the judge if I had done something that inappropriately violates that responsibility. Entitlement changes the mentality completely. I deserve this. I should have this. I need this to be happy. But allowing the followers of Jesus Christ to remain daily dependent on God, Jesus knew would produce in them a grateful, thankful heart rather than a heart of entitlement. This is so important for you to see, and that was demonstrated through the wilderness wanderings as God was providing manna for them on a daily basis and a double portion on the day that the Sabbath followed because he wanted them only to have enough for today and then the next day go out, get what they needed for that day and so forth. God, number one, for our daily needs, wants us to be dependent on him on a daily basis. That's what he's saying. That's what he is leading us to. I love the way the Proverbs writer wrote this. Remove far from me the falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This prayer is for a prayer for our daily needs and not our daily greeds. Christians today in America have a difficult time with distinguishing between a need and a want. Let's be honest, okay? I often pleaded with God that if He blessed me with a Corvette, I could pray more in the morning at home and get to church still on time every Sunday. For some reason, God didn't like that logic. And he said, I will bless you with a 13-year-old Toyota Corolla. How do you like that, pal? If anyone theologically wants to debate me on if God has a sense of humor, I am ready to go. Okay? He wants us to pray for our daily needs, not our daily greeds. There's a lot of debate by scholars on this word daily. Now, it, when the, it came to ancient Syriac versions of this, it means continual or for our need. The early Latin versions talked about daily, as Jerome in the Vulgate, he coined uh, super substantials, which means a supernatural provision. Later on, it meant needs for existence. And it meant it all boils down to this. This word daily boils down to this in a grammatical understanding of it. It means right now I don't have what I need, but I'm going to trust you to provide what I need in the future when I need it in the future. Does that make sense? So if I were to pray in the morning, give us this day our daily bread, I'd probably be asking for something that I don't have at the moment, but I need during the course of the day. 
If I were to pray at the end of the day, give us this day our daily bread, I could be praying for the very next day. Both are appropriate. But that is all entailed in this word that is found here called daily. As one commented, he said, to ask for such bread today is to acknowledge our dependency on God. And the Lord here is asking us to pray rather than to do what so often we like to do, and that is to worry, right? I have noticed that people who are anxious, people who fret a lot, or the more professional clinical term, worry wart, often are deficient in their prayer lives. And often that's what needs to be bolstered to bring them into a more trusting position with God. If you look with me a little bit later in this same chapter, move with me to verse 25. Let's read these words together. As we've just looked at the daily provisions that God has provided, He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food? The body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious or worry or fretting, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious or worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you are in need of them all. And here's the key. This is what prayer will do for us. This is where prayer will position us. It'll give us the right perspective. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now read that in conjunction with what we've just learned and how to pray, and you come to that personal acknowledgement of that I need and am required to be dependent on God daily for those things that I'm in need of. As one commentator wrote, he said, The prayer encourages a continued dependence on God. It does not constitute a situation in which the disciples ask God for a supply for a lengthy period, after which prayer he can go on for some time and forgetfulness about God. He depends on God constantly, and this dependence is expressed in this prayer. This is hard for you and I in this Western culture, isn't it? For them, it was something of, it was normalcy. To us, it is completely foreign. We want the security to know that our bank accounts are fully funded, our closets are fully stocked, and that we are ready to go for whatever eventuality happens in the future. 
We have every type of insurance that will allow us to prepare for those events that are coming in the near future. And those things are not necessarily wrong, and it is definitely not irresponsible to have those things, or does it demonstrate a lack of faith to have those things? But as a believer in Jesus Christ, I must keep things in the proper perspective. Tomorrow is promised to no one, is it? Today's troubles are sufficient for the day. And though I may have those things in place that give me a certain degree of comfort and security in an insecure world, nothing will give me a greater sense of security than my faith and trust in God. Nothing. I like what David Jeremiah wrote in his book called Sanctuary. Every day I try to pray, he writes. God, I want your will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Please meet my needs today to trust him daily proposes that you talk to him daily. Praying week to week is not the Lord's prayer. The challenge of life comes daily, not weekly. For us to remain free of worry, we have to pray and trust him daily. It's not wrong to think about tomorrow, to plan for tomorrow, or to make provisions for tomorrow. It is wrong to worry about tomorrow. I believe God expects me to plan as if it all depends on me, but to pray as if it all depends on Him. The only way we get through crisis with our kids is one day at a time. The only way we get through sickness is one day at a time. The only way we get through times of financial stress is one day at a time. Why? Because God has ordained that life moves at a pace of one day at a time. All He wants us to do is be in step with Him to trust Him for today. Wise words. To take our daily requests to God for our daily needs. The second portion of this template is found in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's an interesting word that they use there, debts. And of course, here in the United States of America, the moment we think of debt, we equate it with what? Finances, right? Being in financial debt. It's all too common. It's all too normal here in the United States to be in debt. And today we are not only instructing our young people that debt is just normal, but we're strapping so much debt to them from the very beginning. These young men and women who are leaving college with sixty dollars to $100,000 worth of debt, even before they even begin life and venture into life, and think of anything about a family or a home or anything of that nature, they already have to contend with debt. That's a problem in our society. But it is not financial debt that Jesus is speaking about here. The debt that he is referring to here is found in Luke eleven four, and it refers to sin. Once you and I became Christians, we were obligated to God to glorify him with our entire life. And when we sin as believers in Jesus Christ, we are robbing him from that glory. We are creating debt with him. 
a debt that we cannot overcome in and of ourselves. As one wrote, he said in, def- in defining this debt, the offense is seen here as debt is sin, according to Luke 11.4, which recognizes that we owe God our full obedience. When we do not pay it, we are debtors to God, and only God can remit that debt. The prayer for forgiveness is qualified as by those also have forgiven our debtors. God's forgiveness of our sin in our life should move us and motivate us to forgive others who have wronged us. Reading different journals from a number of different psychologists and uh, groups of psychology, guilt and bitterness is poisoning the soul of so many Americans that they are hampered and hindered in their personal relationships with one another because of this guilt and because of this bitterness. Guilt because of what they had done wrong to others and bitterness for the wrong that has been done to them by others. The answer to both of those is forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the most freeing elements of Christianity. Once you experience the forgiveness of God towards you for all of your sins, how many of you here this morning would like to see all of your personal sins on the screen behind me listed in order? Anybody would like to volunteer? Anybody think that they would have a blank screen? Thank God no one's raising their hand. If anyone does raise their hand, you who are around them, run. The lightning is coming, okay? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're so thankful that some are unaware of those sins that we have committed. But let's be honest, God sees all things that are open and naked unto Him, right? He knows everything. And so the premise is this. If God has forgiven you this much, and I can't even put my hands far enough apart, why is it that you are so personally reluctant to forgive this much? Why is that the case? Again, the premise is this. Since God has forgiven you, you now forgive others. I will tell you, as my experience as a pastor, that more marriages would be healed if the spouses would simply forgive one another. I will tell you more relationships would be healed if the people would just forgive one another. I know more people who would find and discover peace and joy maybe for the first time if they would finally forgive someone else who has wronged them. I'll tell you my story a little bit, and maybe you can relate to this. Growing up as uh, someone who wasn't a Christian, I got saved. I became a Christian when I was a senior in high school. I grew up in a difficult home scenario. As many of you know, my mom was an alcoholic, and she became violent when she drank. And even after becoming a Christian, I was still very bitter at my mother. I didn't realize how bitter I was until I started seeing it affect areas of my Christian life where I wasn't growing and maturing like I should have been, and I didn't know why. I would say, yes, I've forgiven her, but my attitude of my heart wasn't right. I hadn't, in all actuality. 
I used to pray for her salvation, but I did through a fog of bitterness rather than sincerity. A shadow of bitterness would cover my heart and my mind when I would pray for my mom. Until I was reading through the Word of God and I discovered the realities of the depth of the forgiveness that God had forgiven me. And what right do I then have to hold bitterness over anyone else or unforgiveness towards anyone else? And I said, Lord, I'm not able to do this myself. I ask for your grace. Help me to forgive my mother. And I believe it was at that point that released me from that bitterness that allowed them to pray for her sincerely for those number of years that were required until last year when my mom came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And she hasn't drank since. God was working in my own heart. And notice it's not simply the debt that we are forgiving. It's the debtors. It's the person that we are forgiving. It's not the individual events of my life that God has forgiven. It's me who he has forgiven and then has restored a relationship with me through that forgiveness. Forgiveness is the pathway to God. And that forgiveness can only be discovered in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to reconcile relationships? You want to reconcile your marriage? Begin with forgiveness if there's bitterness in your heart. That bitterness, that unforgiveness, it's held in your heart by an element that's even more scary. You know what that element is? Pride. It's pride that keeps you from forgiving another person. It's your bitterness as your heart grows colder and darker in that regard. Let it go. And do so by remembering what Christ has done for you. And say, Lord, who am I that I may not forgive another? That's so important. I want to read this to you by a pastor I admire greatly. Man's greatest problem is sin. It renders him spiritually dead, alienates him from God and his fellow man. It plagues him with guilt and fear and anxiety. And eventually it can damn him or her to hell. The only solution is forgiveness. The only source of forgiveness is Christ. In the Bible, there are two types of forgiveness. There is judicial that we experience when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's where God forgives all of our sins, past, present, and future. But as we walk with God, there's also parental forgiveness that must be seeked on a daily basis. It's where we know we have disobeyed our Heavenly Father and we need to get right with Him. It's not that this disobedience kicks us out of the family of God. It doesn't. It is this that separates us from that intimate fellowship with God that we so should and desire to have. To allow our prayers to go unhindered by knowing that we are walking in the love of God as Jude states so appropriately. I'm not doing this to earn God's favor. I already have that in the person of Christ. I'm not doing this to earn God's love. I already have that demonstrated in the person of Christ. I'm doing this so I can remain pleasing unto my heavenly Father for all that he has done for me. As he wrote and he stated, 
When a child disobeys his father, the father-child relationship isn't severed. The child is still a member of the family. And there's a sense in which he is already forgiven because he's under the umbrella of his father's parental love. But some of the intimacy of their relationship is lost. The child seeks forgiveness and that restoration and that intimacy is restored. He says that's the idea of Matthew 6, 12. The sin you commit as a believer uh, don't rob you of salvation, but they do of affection. Uh, They do affect your relationship with God, I should state. He still loves you and will always be your Father in heaven. But the intimacy and the sweet communion you once knew is jeopardized until you seek that reconciliation by confessing your sins. As a Christian, you are judicially forgiven and will never come into condemnation. But never presume on the grace of God. Make confession part of your daily prayers so sin will never erode your relationship with your heavenly Father. And I believe that segues beautifully into this last point found in verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, some of your translations may have evil one there. And I believe that's more uh, specific to what he's actually saying. I believe the evil that he is talking about there is personified in the person of Satan himself which would be consistent with the fact that Jesus just spent time in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and he confronted Satan himself. But part of our prayer is that we should be kept from the evil one. In fact, that was Jesus' prayer for us in John seventeen fifty, when he said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. And James gives us the promise, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Understand that the evil one is a reality. If you believe the Bible, and you believe in God, and you believe in Jesus Christ, you have to believe in Satan also. He is a reality. And his job is to take you away from all that God would desire for you to have. To stumble you in any way that he can. When it comes to temptation, it's the allurement of the evil one that appeals to areas of your flesh that would draw you into sin rather than to remain obedience to Jesus Christ and to the Word of God. Perfect example is Eve in the garden herself, drawn away from perfect obedience into sin, and the effect of sin leveled everyone. As everyone born from Adam and Eve was born into sin after that point. I want you to understand something about sin that will hopefully equip you to prepare for temptation when it comes. Please hear me right now. This is so important. Your sin doesn't only affect you, it affects everyone around you. Know that. Adam and Eve had no idea that what they were doing was going to condemn mankind going forward and require Christ to come down and to save us. Your sin doesn't only affect you and your relationship with God. If you're married, it'll affect your marriage. If you're a parent, it'll affect your parenting. I can't tell you how often I have heard of individuals who have fallen in sinfulness and have devastated not only themselves, but their entire family. Obviously, we all just read of the horrific events of Ashley Madison. 
People looking for extramarital affairs and discovering that in those people looking, 400 Canadian and American pastors were amongst them. Man, that's wrong. We've got to call that out. But it doesn't affect just them, does it? Think of their whole congregations. Think of their children. Think of their spouses. A man looking at pornography just doesn't affect him. It affects his whole household. In dealing with one individual uh, some time ago, uh, he told me that as he was struggling with pornography, the worst situation could ever happen that happened. His teenage daughter walked in on him. Devastates everything, man. Sin doesn't only affect you, it affects everyone around you. So remember that when you are tempted and your flesh is asked to be drawn away into something that at the moment would give you personal satisfaction, temporarily give you pleasure, or instant gratification, understand that the consequences of that sin will most likely not only level you, but those people around you. I can't even imagine stating to my wife that I had an affair on her. I, 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 couldn't, I can't even imagine that. That terrifies me and keeps me so far away from that so I would never enter into it. Understand that it is not God who tempts us. It is the allurement of the world that is oversought by the ruler of this world. For James clearly tells us, let no one say when he or she is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. It's not God who does that. It's this world, the fallen world. It's Satan himself that allures us from these things. But we have a promise from God. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. People all struggle with basically the same things. The intensity of any one particular sin may be different in the life of an individual, but all sin is common to man. There's nothing new. We all are subjected to the same weaknesses. But no, God is faithful, Paul went on to write, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Hey, if you're struggling with pornography, you get rid of any source or any vehicle that would lead you to pornography. If you've got to get rid of your computer, do it. How radical is that, right? If it's your smartphone, go to a dumb phone. Go get one of those phones that have the big numbers, and all you can do is call your mom in 911. I don't care what you have to do, but just do it. Just get rid of it. If you're flirting around at work with a coworker, stop it. If you have to leave that job to do so, leave it. Okay? Be radical. This is what being intentional is all about. I'm not going to just hope that it goes away. I know God has given me a method and a plan for escape, and I'm going to take advantage of that. When Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, when she threw herself at him, what did he do? I don't know what my exit strategy is. I, I, I don't know what I should do next. Oh, Lord, please show me. Please, please, the temptation is overwhelming. Lord, show me. You know what a guy did? He ran. I love that. Plan A, run away. Like the great theologian Forrest Gump once said, run, Forrest, run. 
Go! Get out of there! God will give you a way of escape. One of the ways you can prepare for that temptation in advance, Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Let me read this to you quickly and in closing. This petition is another plea for God to provide what we and in ourselves do not have. It is the appeal to God to place watch over our eyes, over our ears, over our mouth, our feet, and our hands. That in whatever we see, hear, or say, in any place that we go, and in anything we do, He will protect us from that sin. Another commentator wrote, The implication of this part of prayer seems to be, Lord, don't ever lead us into a trial that will present such a temptation that we will not be able to resist it. It is lying claim to the promise that God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape. It is similar to a prayer that Jewish men and women and children learn from day one. And that prayer is this. Bring me not into the power of sin, they would pray. Not into the power of guilt. Not into the power of temptation. And not into the power of anything shameful. As one pastor wrote it very candidly, he says, I don't know about you, but I have a healthy sense of distrust when it comes to my flesh. That's why I carefully guard what I think and say, watch, read, and listen to. If I sense spiritually that there is danger ahead, I run into the presence of God and say, Lord, I will be overwhelmed by this situation unless you come and aid me. That's the spirit of Matthew 6.13. We live in a fallen world that throws temptation after temptation our way. Therefore, it is only natural and proper for us as Christians to continually confess our sins receive the Father's forgiveness, and plead with Him to deliver us from the possibilities of sinning against Him in the future. That's our template for prayer. That is what God has brought us to. He closes with a final commentary on verse 12. Wanting the individual to know that if you are willing to pray and ask for forgiveness of those who have debt towards you, then you can be confident that God will forgive you. Remember as he wrote and stated in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. He comments on that by saying, for if you forgive others their trespasses, he wants us to know, that's the grammatical understanding, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Know that. Be confident of that. But if you will not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Mark said it this way. Mark eleven twenty five, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. Jesus is saying that to fail to forgive others is to demonstrate that one has not felt the saving touch of God themselves. That's where it all begins. Knowing how your Heavenly Father will respond to your prayer will only encourage you to pray more. 
I ask you the question today. Are you harboring unforgiveness in your heart towards anyone? This segues into our next week's lesson as we look at those things that hinder prayer. But I would be remiss if I did not state to you openly this morning that unforgiveness is what hinders prayer the most. Maybe today as we take communion together, I think it would be only appropriate that we all remember the depth, the breadth, and the width in which God went to forgive you and I through the person of Jesus Christ. Remembering that horrific moment as he hung bludgeoned on the cross for you and I. That was the manner in which our sins could be forgiven and only forgiven. As we come together this morning in communion, as we partake and remember of that event, and as we try to be intentional concerning prayer, let us remember that it begins with the forgiveness of others. Do you need to forgive your spouse of something this morning? Then let's forgive him and her. Your sons, your daughters, your mom, your dad, a co-worker, whoever it may be, let us begin to be intentional about prayer by forgiving those people. Some say, well, I don't know if I'm responsible to forgive unless they ask for it in advance. That is not biblical. God says you forgive because you have been forgiven. And if you want your prayer life to change, this is where it all starts. It starts with that forgiveness. And as we close our service today and take communion together, as we've gone through this template of prayer together, let us close as we take communion together and remember that which God has done for us. Now why, why will you not forgive someone who has wronged you? Just remember what God gave to forgive you of what you have done wrong to him.